0: Let's be pro-truth rather than anti-anything, is my introduction. Um, Two true stories uh, by way of illustration. A woman who professed to be a Christian uh, once approached a pastor and asked him to conduct her wedding ceremony. Uh, This individual had been divorced some years before and was hoping to remarry another man. And so the pastor asked what biblical grounds there had been for the divorce. The woman responded and I kid you not well you know the Bible teaches that cleanliness is next to godliness. And my first husband was a very dirty man. My father Uh, one suspected one of the laborers on the farm of pilfering food produce, and he challenged them about it. And the man's response was, Jimmy, doesn't the Bible teach that God helps them who helps themselves? I think my father's less than reverent response was, God help you if I ever catch you, or something to that effect. Now, of course, neither of these idioms are found in the Bible. But they do sound like they might be, don't they? The Bible doesn't say that cleanliness is next to godliness. It's uh, it's an idiom. It's a proverb. Uh, they may even be good traditions um, with nothing wrong in themselves. but But how can we be sure about what the Bible says? Well, that's actually the task that we've got for this evening, you and I together. To weigh up in the light of, of the objective, authoritative, biblical revelation what to do when the traditions of men collide with or cancel out the power of God's commands. In June of 1982, Pope John Paul II was welcomed by the moderator of the Church of Scotland in the courtyard of New College under the shadow of the statue of the Scottish Protestant reformer, John Knox. On Thursday, last week, an actor playing the same historic John Knox was one of many former Scottish characters played by actors who led a St. Ninian Day celebration parade as part of Pope Benedict XVI's state visit to the United Kingdom. Question, as Bible-believing evangelical Christians, should we be concerned about that? Well, the Saninian Day celebration in Edinburgh and the Mass in Bella Houston Park in Glasgow, observed uh, by devout Catholics, non-believers, and openly atheistic politicians alike, was described by our First Minister, Alex Salmond, as, and I quote, a great day for Scotland. End quote. But was it? But was it? What would John Knox, the man who in his day was unafraid of monarchs, unafraid of politicians, unafraid of fellow clergymen, but whose passionate prayer was heard by a friend in the garden at the back of his house, as three times he cried out in anguish against the political and religious backlash of the counter-reformation, O Lord, give me Scotland or I die. God answered that prayer and the Bible of the reformation The sola scriptura, the reformation that began with Luther and swept through Europe and came to these shores, that Bible became the authoritative rule that shaped Scotland's religious, educational, scientific, and political agenda for hundreds of years to come. That is why we were once known as the land of the book. Should we be concerned about what took place in our city and our country last week? It is on record that Mary, Queen of Scots, declared that she was more afraid of the prayers of John Knox than she was of an army of 10,000 soldiers. Are you a prayer warrior? Imagine that in the seats of political power today, your name reaches our political leaders. And they on record say, I'm more afraid of the prayers of that man or woman than I am against the power of terrorism or Al-Qaeda. Wow. What would John Knox have said? I have absolutely no hesitation in believing that he would be absolutely outraged. Outraged. But, is it time to let go of the past and in our multicultural, multi-faith, politically correct, ultra-tolerant society, live and let live? Well, I believe the answer is yes and No. It is time to let go of bigotry and sectarianism. It is time to let go of hatred and segregation in our schools and our communities. But it is surely time again to examine the eternal truths of God's infallible word and to build a true biblical faith upon that foundation alone. And and, and old and young alike, to myself, I want us to be stirred uh, with an urgency to do something about this. As we come to God's Holy Word. In defending biblical authority against the heresies found in Roman Catholicism, uh, the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we must humbly, we must be humbly aggressive in propagating the true faith and patiently adamant in the true gospel's defense if need be to the most utmost of sacrifice. And so we continue this evening with our second sermon in our series, The Courage to Be Biblical, in which we're examining the teaching and doctrine found in Roman Catholicism that resulted in sparking off the Reformation and the development of a Protestant theology that now lies at the heart of what we unashamedly here at Charlotte Chapel hold in common with other evangelicals. Now it's a difficult balance. Uh, or target to achieve, but our quest, yours and mine together, is one of pro-truth rather than anti-anything. Uh, I was speaking to one of the honorary elders during the week, and he said that a former pastor in this pulpit uh, got the YPM so fired up uh, with his teaching that was slightly, uh, more than slightly anti-Catholic, that they went out and they disrupted some Catholic openness. I don't want you to do that. <laughs> I want you to love those who are in error of the scriptures wherever you find them and to teach them a better path. Now this is a difficult balance, but the starting place for truth is the inherent infallible revelation of God as it comes to us in the form of our Holy Bible. Before I come to the Catholic traditions, let's look here at Mark 7, the traditions of the Jewish elders. Mark 7 and 1 opens with a description of one of the many fact-finding delegations of theologians Uh, This morning, Andy Prime said that we're all theologians, how right he is, Uh, and there were theologians in Jesus' day, and they came down from Jerusalem to check Jesus out as he ministered in various regions across ancient Palestine. We believe that he's somewhere in the Galilee, the region of the Galilee at this time. Now, if you read the background and the context, there are some pretty amazing things going on around this period of Jesus' ministry. Let me list some of them for you. The sick are being healed, the dead have been raised, thousands of people have been fed with just two fish and five loaves. Jesus has even defied the natural laws of physics by walking on the water, and his teaching from the Old Testament Scriptures has clarity, authority, and power. The people testify to themselves like they've never encountered before. Now that's pretty convincing stuff, you'd have thought, to get this group of wise and learned theologians, leaning at least, if not accepting fully, but leaning towards a position that Jesus might just be the promised Messiah. But no, they take a far more important view of things. And a much more serious stance in regard to his and his disciples' behavior, because, wait for it, they're eating their food with ceremonially unclean hands. Now, you might have understood their indignation uh, somewhat if Jesus and his disciples were eating food with dirty hands, but that's not what's being said here. It is not that their hands were dirty, or in the west of Scotland, they would say they're mochet. They're not unhygienic. They're simply unclean according to the ceremonial tradition of the elders. So what are the traditions of the elders? Well, in the first five books of both the Jewish and and subsequently the Christian Bible, the Pentateuch, there is a lot of detailed regulations and instructions, uh, most of it given to Moses and, and the elders of Israel around the time of Sinai and the giving of the law, regarding God's laws and his rules for his holy people to live by. But over the years, especially in the fourth and the fifth centuries before Jesus came to earth, there has emerged within Judaism a class of experts in the law called the scribes. Now, these scribes weren't content just to live by the moral laws that God had handed down at Sinai. Um, no, they, they had what one Bible commentator calls a passion for definition. They wanted the great principles amplified, expanded, broken down. And in doing so, they introduced quite literally thousands and thousands of little rules and regulations that governed every conceivable situation in life. I've put it in my notes. I wasn't sure how safe it was going to be. I'm going to go for it and see what like a congregation you are. I suspect that some of these scribes are still around today and that they pop up at church meetings occasionally. Uh, A passion for definition. That didn't work. I'll not do that again. Now, although these rules were written, weren't written down until the 3rd century AD when they became known within Judaism as the Mishnah, they're widely taught at this time as an oral, a word-of-mouth tradition, and adhered to by devout Jews during the time that Jesus wanted there. So what are they talking about? What's this ceremonially unclean hands? Well, before you could eat anything, according to these little, minute, defined traditions, um, water that was specifically set aside and kept clean in big stone jars, a quantity of it had to be taken and with your hands turned upwards, the water had to be poured over the turned up finger so that it ran down over the wrist on both hands and then you took the fist of the one hand and you rubbed it in the other and then you did the other one like that. The only problem now was that your hands haven't been unclean. The water that you've now cleaned them with is unclean. So another amount of water, measuring one and a half eggshells worth, had to be then poured over the fingers when they were in this position so that the water would dry off. Now you're ceremonially clean. Now, And before anybody writes in or asks me at the door, I have no idea what kind of an egg it was. But I can guarantee the scribes would have known. So read the Mishnah. I'm sure it's in there. So that's, that's the problem that Jesus encountered, or that the scribes and, and the elders encountered with Jesus. And they observed many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So how did Jesus respond to that? Well, look there again in the text, verses 6 and 7. Think how scathing Jesus' reply would have sounded to their very sincere and religiously motivated concerns. Using the same words that Isaiah had used to denounce the false religious teachers in his day, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29 verse 13 in verses 6 and 7 of Mark 7. He says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And then in the next few verses, in verses 8 and 9, Jesus contrasts the commands of God with the traditions of men, clearly concerned that they're not the same, and neither should they be treated as such. And then he goes on to use one of their own traditions to really debunk the whole thing as a nonsense. Let me read you just three other quotations from Scripture. We don't have time to look them up, but they'll be on the notes in the sermon, if you want to listen to it later on, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2 says, Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Colossians 2 and verse 8 See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. And then a more serious and more stern warning, even still, in Revelation 22 verses 18 through 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes these words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this book. Which brings me to examining with you some of the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. Let's first of all consider their view of Scripture. Scripture. Catholicism has a different Bible. It believes the Old Testament and the New Testament as we have it, but it adds um, either 12 or 15 books of the Apocrypha. Uh, Sometimes the 15 books are included in the translation that they use. Mostly it's 12. Uh, But, you know, there's no record of Jesus ever quoting from the books of the Apocrypha. It means the false testimony, the false books. Now, one of the problems for the Catholic Church and its members is that binding doctrines based on the stuff written in these false books is part and partial of their faith and practice today. Uh, let me show you a couple of them. Some of the unscriptural Catholic doctrines supported by the Apocrypha are purgatory and almsgiving for the atonement of sin. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Article 12, Section 3, Paragraphs 1030, 1031, and 1032, uh, we're going to put it up on the screen so you've got a note of this. This is directly out of the most recent edition of the Catholic Catechism. All who die in God's grace and friendship but still imperfectly purified are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification. This teaching is also based Uh, on the practice of prayer for the dead already mentioned in sacred scripture. And they quote which sacred scripture they mean by that. Um, It's from the book of um, Maccabees, which is not a biblical canonical book, uh, where um, he makes atonement for the dead uh, and believes that it's okay to do so. The church also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead. So what are we to do with that? How do we help people who are bound into such erroneous teaching? Other unscriptural things found in these books are the justification of suicide, 2 Maccabees 14, Uh, The justification of slavery and cruelty, you've seen much in the news recently and and, and at least in part some response to quite sickening abuse um, hidden up and covered over by the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. The problem, folks, is um, not for sexual abuse, but cruelty is condoned in some of their unscriptural texts. So the harsh treatment that is meted out by monks and nuns in the schools has scriptural justification. Yet, of course, we know from the canon of Scripture that we use that it doesn't. So that's part of the problem. The apocryphal books were formally canonized by the Roman Catholic Church on the 8th of April, 15. Forty-six. Again, some of you are Catholic friends. Some of you are maybe from that background. And you think, well, this goes all the way back in history, all the way back to the first Pope Peter. Well, Peter wasn't the first pope. We're into the fourth century before anybody's even using the name pope. And the first person that they tried to apply it to didn't want it. But his successor did take it. And yet, if you read within uh, within Catholic teaching, they've got a list and all the dates and all the goes. Three centuries of that is an absolute work of fiction. Absolute work of fiction. Yet they base so much upon it. The Council of Trent was actually a series of three church councils held between 1545 and 1563 AD and dominated by the newly formed Jesuit order. Uh, it was called as an integral part of the Counter Reformation, which had begun 28 years earlier sparked by Martin Luther. Uh, The then pope issued what is known as a papal bull. It's a formal proclamation uh, convening the council, and he required three things, and these are they. The defining of Catholic dogma, that is doctrine, and the reformation of the Catholic church life, um, forming church life to be what he wanted it to be, and thirdly, and most importantly for us, if we're thinking that we can actually be united, Protestants and Catholics again, in a common faith without doing anything about the historical things that divide us, the extermination of heresy, which by meant, he's what which has meant the Protestant faith and its doctrines. And that's dogma for the Catholic Church, uh, it's irreversible, they can't do anything about it, they can't, um, having made it dogma, made it doctrine, you can't change it. So one of the main issues of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura, the Bible alone. Now, in order for the Roman Catholics to say the same thing, the apocryphal books were added to give scriptural proof to their false teachings. And I read a resolution from the Council of Trent in 1548 AD, which is, if anyone receives not as sacred and canonical The said books entire with all their parts. As they have been used and read in the Catholic Church, let him be anathema. That is, accursed. So as a Protestant, here I go. I'm going to have fellowship with my Catholic counterpart. I'm cursed. Cursed by papal bull. Unless I receive his word. He cannot receive mine and remain a Catholic. Because it's against the authoritative tradition that they hold as authoritative as our canonical scriptural word. So having distanced itself from the canonical Bible of the first century as their sure guide, can you see as I do more clearly than I've ever done before, the kinds of errors that have crept into Catholicism. Many of the early church fathers didn't support the use of the Apocrypha, by the way, the guys who lived in the first, second, and third centuries. But does it matter? Well, let's refer back to what Jesus says in Mark 7 and 13. What he says to the scribes of his day is, Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. So what is the Roman Catholic view of tradition? Well, Catholicism gives tradition equal authority with the Bible. Again, referring to the catechism of the Catholic Church, it says sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the Word of God. So everything that's written in here, plus the 12 books of the Apocrypha, plus everything that's ever been said by a pope, or by Rome in the last 1,700 years. All of that has the same authority as this. There is a handed-down tradition within Catholicism that is particularly insidious to true faith in the absolute finished work of Christ as our only Savior from sin and one mediator between God and man. And not only in Catholicism, there is a part of very, very high Anglicanism that that are now beginning to support the idea of a cult uh, of Mary. But one strongly held uh, sacred tradition is the doctrine of Mary. Now, there are two dogmas, that is doctrines, that have been pronounced. Um, The Latin is ex cathedra. That is when the Pope of the day exercised It says, his universal authority as supreme teacher. Just listen to the language of this. When the Pope exercises his universal authority as supreme teacher of doctrine on faith and morals, and according to the Roman Catholic Church, when a Pope makes such such pronouncements, he is infallible. That is, incapable of error. I don't know about you, but I am completely convinced that there is only one man who has ever lived who is incapable of error. And his name was Jesus Christ. But having uh, pronounced these things, irrespective of whether they've got any relevance or reference to what the Bible teaches, they become dogma, doctrine. Two infallible doctrines are, according to the Catholic Church, the Immaculate Conception. Of Mary. Uh, This has got nothing to do with uh, the birth of Jesus, by the way. It's to do with the birth of Mary herself. In 1854, just think how recently that was, the then Pope declared that the Most Holy Virgin Mary was in the first moment of her conception by a unique gift of grace and privilege of Almighty God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ the Redeemer of mankind preserved free from all stain of original sin. Despite the fact that our authoritative scripture in Luke 1 and 47 quite clearly says that she declares that the Lord Jesus is her Savior. If Jesus is her Savior then she must have been someone needing saving. Yet the Catholic Church concludes that she was free from sin from the moment of conception. Second one is the assumption of Mary. Well, no, just listen to that. Listen very carefully to what's being said there. Being infallibly taught and believed, the Roman Catholic Church is quite clearly stating that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is not... The only sinless human to have ever lived. And you know what? That matters. The second ex cathedra dogma is the assumption of Mary. This dogma, though widely taught for centuries, was only formally pronounced as infallible doctrine as recently as 1950 by Pope Pius. In simple terms, it says that at the end of our earthly life, Mary's body and soul were taken into heaven by Jesus. Now, recent, very recent, um, within the last couple of years, two Catholic theologians have tried to explain that there are two basic reasons behind her assumption. Um, Get this. The first one is, well, it's the act of a son who loves his mom. That's why he did it. But secondly, it is supposed to signify an encouragement for other believers. Sins, again, wait for it. Mary is an inspirational example as she is the, listen to the language of this, folks. She is the firstborn from among the dead. Sinless, and now firstborn from among the dead. The Bible, our canonical Bible, our authoritative revealed Word of God, Attributes both these teachings and doctrines to Jesus and to Him alone. He is the sinless one. He is the firstborn from among the dead. He is the example for all faith and doctrine. So you see, these two Roman Catholic traditions nullify the saving word of God and reduce what they claim to believe about Jesus. To nothing. To nothing. Someone I think has rightly said that Jesus plus something ruins everything. It's Christ alone. As taught in Scripture alone. They also teach about her perpetual virginity. It's another dogma, a doctrine of Mary's never-ending or perpetual virginity. Catholics believe that having given birth to Jesus, Mary continued as a virgin, despite again in Matthew 1 and 25 of their Bible and ours, which implies quite clearly that after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary, within the normal marriage relationship, had a normal sexual relationship. Mark 6 and 3 clearly states that our Lord Jesus had brothers and sisters. On one occasion, his mother and his brothers and sisters show upside a house where he's doing some teaching and working some miracles. And a crowd comes in and says, your mom and your siblings are really concerned about what you're doing, Jesus. And he says, listen, listen, listen. Whoever believes in me and puts their trust in me and follows me, he or she is my mother and my brothers and my sisters. There's a fourth thing about the doctrine of Mary that really concerns me. And that's the worship of Mary. Although some Catholic scholars rigorously try to defend their claims that Catholics don't actually worship Mary. It is a very, difficult, it's very difficult to accept their attempts to explain the differences between how they honor and, and revere and venerate Jesus and Mary and the saints. Now, in, pra- in practice, Catholics tend to give equal, if not more, attention in prayer and worship to Mary than they do to Jesus. And the previous pope, John Paul II, was... I can only describe him as a big Mary fan. And it was she, not Jesus, where his prayers were addressed when uh, he was hit by a would-be assassin's bullet. Uh, this is from um, a book called Memory and Identity, uh, John Pope John Paul II, published in 2005. You'll find it on page 184 if you need verification. Let me quote from it. John Paul II, when he was shot during an assassination attempt, this is his words, Could I forget that event in St. Peter's Square took place on the day and at the hour when the first appearance of the Mother of Christ to the poor little peasants has been remembered for over 60 years at Fatima, Fatima, Portugal. For in everything that happened to me on that very day, I felt that extraordinarily motherly protection and care which turned out to be stronger than the deadly bullet. It's error. Desperately dangerous error. So in conclusion, where does that leave us? Well, what's the task for us as Bible believing Christians. So, where does all of this leave us, particularly for those of us who have family members, friends, and colleagues who are caught up in the teachings and the traditions of the Catholic Church, or of any church tradition that detracts from or adds to the sufficiency of Scripture alone? This is true for those who uh, are caught up in liberalism, uh, redaction theology. For our brothers and sisters in the Church of Scotland is now debating the whole issue over whether or not a practicing homosexual can be ordained as a minister, uh, taking a revisionist view of Scripture that doesn't hold according to the Word of God. Uh, what do we do with all of that? How can we help one another? Well, first of all, let me encourage you as I remind you of Jesus' mission statement as I see it. Luke 19 and verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save That which was lost. As I read the Gospels, I see there are two categories, if you like, of lost people during Jesus' day, as there are today. There are secularly lost people, and there are religiously lost people. And the sufficiency of the Word of God to communicate the Gospel to both of these lost categories of people is as sufficient and powerful today as it has ever been. And it's to the gospel that we need to turn. 2 Timothy 3 and 16 and 17 says, All Scripture, this stuff, brothers and sisters in Christ, this stuff, 66 canonical books that reveal to us on every page a Father's love, a Savior's sacrifice, the promise of the guide of the Holy Spirit it's this stuff all scripture is God breathed and it's useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work now call me simple I've been called a lot worse this is the answer Let's take this to anyone who's in error. Let's read it with them. Let's pray through it with them. Let's teach it to them. Let's encourage them to take their stand upon it. Do you know this is a good time, a good time in history, to reach out in love and in truth to your very disillusioned Catholic friends and colleagues. There is widespread disillusionment within the established traditional church and do you know what you or I may not have the faith to pray give me Scotland or I die but we may have the faith to pray give me and you fill in the name of the person that needs to hear the liberating truth about Jesus Christ who is the one mediator between God and man our only Savior Jesus Christ let us pray